in light of the cross, justification by faith, is it legal or experiential or both? And we want to look at it from the standpoint that God's justification certainly needs to be legal, not in terms of uh, amnesty. You know what an amnesty is. I remember when I was uh, in college, the Vietnam War was going on, and uh, there was the draft, and I had to go to Knoxville and have a physical exam taken, and I was given a, a, a number. I forget now. I was in the low numbers, you know, like in the 20s, and so... I would have been one of the first ones that they would have drafted because I had such a low number. If I was like up in the 300s, why the likelihood it might have been more remote. But the fact that I was in college and I stayed there and I was pursuing a, a pastoral degree that helped to exempt me from having to go over to Vietnam. But I remember that there were those that were called the draft dodgers who didn't want to go into the war and into the service, and so they were fleeing to Canada, and for them to come back, they would have been prosecuted. And so it was, I think it was then when, was it Jimmy Carter became president? He declared an amnesty. He suspended the laws, and he said that all of the draft dodgers could come back into the country, and they would be forgiven. So a uh, amnesty suspends the law, okay? Now, is that the nature of God's justifying and forgiving sinners? Does he suspend his law? Well, that would certainly uh, be an unjust forgiveness, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be according to law. It would be undermining of the law and the government of God. And so God must do everything according to justice, according to his law, and so he has a unique way of doing this because he incorporates all of humanity into Jesus Christ, who perfectly lived out the law in our human flesh and then offered himself as a, as a perfect offering, sacrifice for sin, both upholding the law of God as well as extending mercy to all who are sinners and pardoning and forgiving them based on justice, based on the law of God, without God, having, without God suspending his law at all in some kind of an amnesty. So it's true that when Christ died upon the cross, uh, he effected a legal, sometimes we call it a forensic justification for all men, for all men and women. Uh, you could ask the question, or did he confine his sacrifice to a mere provision contingent upon the initiative of the sinner in accepting it? Or I like to put it this way, does, does God forgive you of your sin before you ask him to forgive you, or does he wait for you to ask him to forgive you of your sin and then he grants your request? All right, I think that question really kind of helps to clarify it because God's forgiveness is the initiative that he takes. He declares his forgiveness to everyone before they ask him. This is the great gift of love from the cross. Is the sacrifice of Christ ineffective until the sinner repents and accepts it? Does the sinner's acceptance start the wheels of justification rolling? Both those questions are no, because God effects the forgiveness. And we're going to see that uh, this is more than just prevenient grace, as John Wesley taught it, but it has some very practical effects for us in our day-to-day -day living. Now, it's certainly true that the sacrifice on Christ Christ on the cross was a provision in the sense that it was provided. But is it provisional in the sense that it is ineffective until the sinner takes the initiative? The answer to that is no. It's not based on the sinner taking the initiative because God takes the initiative. 
Look at John chapter 1 and verse 9. The Gospel of John chapter 1 and verse 9. And I want you to see the connections here between two verses and the first chapter of John. John, We're all very familiar with this verse, John chapter 1 and verse 9. That was the true light which gives light to how many? To every man coming into the world. Now, who is the true light? That's that's Jesus, correct? And I can remember when Rose uh, Hewn was here a number of years ago. Some of you remember Rosebud. Boy, things have really turned over here in eight years. Hasn't it, Gail? Are we the only oldies here? (laughs) You and me? Oh, Leslie is here. (laughs) You remember Rosebud, right? But, huh? Pretty much everybody else is a newbie since Rosebud. She's out in Hawaii right now. And we used to talk about Jesus as the light of the world and equate that with God's love and with his life. And, and uh, she just enjoyed talking about Jesus being the light of the world. What does it mean that Jesus is the true light and that he is the light to every man coming in the world? What does this word light mean? And it's defined for us there in verse 4. In the first chapter, John 1 and verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the what? So the light means what? Life. Can you see that? Okay, so the light means life. All right? So now go back to verse 9. It says, that was the true light, Jesus, which gives light or what? Life to every man coming into the world. Does that help a little bit more now to understand what that's saying? So Jesus literally gives life to saint and sinner when they come into the world. It all comes from Jesus, doesn't it? Now, it's essential that uh, we, uh, we see that Christ, the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world, is not just an offer, but he is the gift of life to everyone. He doesn't offer life to everyone. He actually gives it to everyone, whether they believe on him or not. Um, There is some wonderful good news here. Salvation in Christ is not a mere provision, but a fact that Christ is not merely offered to every man. He is given to every man. That the Lord loves us so much that we cannot be lost unless we resist the Holy Spirit and that it is easy to be saved and hard to be lost in view of this great salvation, that when Christ died on the cross, he actually did something for every man. What we're saying here is that because Jesus died on the cross for every man, that justifies life for everyone who's living right now. In fact, this gives... God the right to give life to sinners right now on this earth. Because God has to argue this thing on the basis of his law, on the basis of justice. God has to justify your existence as a sinner, that wicked person's life who is a sinner out there. He has to argue the the rightness of that based on his law to who? First of all, to Satan. Because Satan says, they're sinners, and they're mine, and I claim them, they ought to die. And then he has to argue it to the rest of the intelligent beings out there in the universe. And how does he argue that? He argues it on the basis that when Jesus died, all died in him. And that justifies the life of every saint as well as sinner. Jesus has earned the right for everyone to live. He is the light of every man who's coming. Have we nailed that? so that it is pretty much clear to us. And God doesn't do this on the basis of an amnesty, but it's on the basis of justice as well as love. So you would definitely have to say that this is not initiated by from the human side, correct? 
it is God who takes the initiative in affecting our salvation and our life, and that it is impossible to be lost, rather, unless we take the initiative in resisting and rejecting what he has affected for us. And that justification by God's free grace is effected for all. And God in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, all men owe even their physical life to Christ's sacrifice, and by his stripes they are healed. So you could think of it this way, that before you were even born, God set up a bank account for you a trust account. And what he did was he put a deposit in your account. And you didn't earn it. He did for you. And let's say that he deposited a million dollars there for your life. So when you were born into this world, you were given this foundation, as it were, <laughs> uh, to, of life that, that you came born into. It was a birthright. It's true that you inherited nothing from Adam but sin, condemnation, and death, but all of that was reversed by Jesus Christ who reversed your sin and your condemnation and your death because of Jesus' doing and dying, and it was like a birthright that was given to Esau. Esau was given a birthright, wasn't he? Tremendous blessings that were involved in that birthright. Did he appreciate it? No, we know he didn't appreciate it because he just sold out for a pot of stew, didn't he? That's how much he valued it. That's how much he valued it. And he, he threw it away. He resisted this wonderful gift that was actually placed in his hand. Now, folks, what has been placed in your hand is a great big bank account of life, even before you were born. This is a birthright just like Esau, that God has put into your hand. Now, do you appreciate it? Or do you resist it? Because if you appreciate it, that same life that you're living right now and breathing, uh, if you don't resist it, uh, it will prepare you for Jesus' second coming. And it is easy to be saved and hard to be lost if you don't resist it, if you appreciate it. The gift is something... To, to be cherished. It's a, it's a wonderful gift of agape love. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It was all thought up beforehand by God. And if you appreciate it, then it will overwhelm your soul and direct the course of your living. Now, if you look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the epistles I'm referring to here back at the end of the New Testament, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This means that Jesus is our defense attorney in the judgment. And we talked a little bit about the judgment last Sabbath. Jesus is not only the judge, but he's also the defense attorney. And uh, God has really stacked all of the odds in the favor of the sinner as far as the judgment is concerned here. And it says that he is the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of who? Of the whole world. Then just a couple of pages over in 1 John 4 and verse 10. Look at this. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. It says, herein is love... Not that we loved God. So God, whatever God is going to do here, he did this for folks who did not love him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the sacrifice for our sins. He did this for people who did not love him. See? So truly, this propitiation, this sacrifice applies to all, to all men. So it is more than a mere provision. As Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, page 660, never one 
saint or sinner eats his daily food, but he is nourished by the body and the blood of Christ. The cross of Christ is stamped on every loaf. So, you know, God has ordained it so that life is sustained by eating the food that he produces. See, God is the one that's the ultimate creator of the food, isn't he? It's wonderful, all of this production system and supply system that we have in modern America, but really the whole thing is dependent on God growing the food for us out there in the field, isn't it? And so every bread, loaf of bread, every morsel of food that we eat, this is the God-ordained means of maintaining our life, and we owe it to him. And ultimately, we owe it to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross because that is what gives life to us and justifies our existence. So the propitiation or the sacrifice is already effective for all, both saint or sinner. You see, the sacrifice is not effective when you believe it. It's already effective before you believe it. Can you see that point? It's already effective for you before you believe it. All men live because of it. It is the, the sacrifice is the basis for justification. That is the forgiveness of sin. Only because of the sacrifice is it possible for God to overlook the sins of the whole world. Uh, in Matthew, he talks about how God sends his reign on the just and on the unjust, and he opens his hand to satisfy the desire of every living thing. God sends wonderful blessings even upon his enemies, doesn't he? With the rains, and he satisfies the desire of every living thing. You think of even the worst of people. They enjoy tremendous blessings in life, don't they? And why is it? It is because it comes from the hand of God himself. So we note that John says that the sacrifice, the propitiation was offered for those who did not love God. Go now to Romans chapter 5 and verse uh, 6 and onwards here. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. <clears throat> here we read, When we were with yet... When we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then drop down a verse where it says, God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then drop down again. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. So the death of Christ made effective a legal justification that is applicable to all men. Legally, all men were justified because he died for all. And he died for them, it says, while they were yet sinners. When we were still enemies, it says, we were reconciled. Well, maybe that sounds like a blatant contradiction, doesn't it? How can you be reconciled when you're still at enmity? And the answer is that we were justified legally by a sacrifice that was made for all men and the reconciliation was included. But we want to be careful here because this legal justification and receiving the atonement, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago here, are two different things. Uh, we receive the atonement, the reconciliation, the reconciliation, only when we believe. We have now, uh, in look at Romans 5 and verse 11, just a couple of verses down here. Romans 5, verse 11, it says, We have now received the reconciliation, or the atonement there, and... Paul says there in, in uh, Romans 5 and verse 1, we receive it when we are justified by faith. So there are two phases 
to justification. There is the legal justification, Jesus' death for all men on the cross. Then there's the experience of justification by faith when we receive it, when our hearts are reconciled to God, when we now appreciate this great gift. We see the cross and what it has purchased for us. We see the great love. And it's not just a mind adjustment, but it's a heart reconciliation. The atonement is received in the heart, you see. So to confuse legal justification with justification by faith is not going to really help finish the work in our generation. It's only going to set the things back to the 16th century Reformation and lead to lawlessness because some people just look at justification by faith as being a legal thing. And you believe it, and then it's some kind of a book transaction, but it never changes the heart, see. Justification of life is a legal thing, but when the sinner then sees it and appreciates it, then it becomes justification by faith. Faith grasps it. Love creates that faith, and there is a heart adjustment, this reconciliation of the heart. Um, Luther got it right as far as the legal part of it, uh, and he was just getting his fingertips on the heart adjustment aspect of it, but not completely. Now I want you to go to Romans chapter 5 and verse 18. Romans 5, 18. It says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, that would be Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. And again, we have what appears to be a contradiction. How can Paul contrast the judgment which came by Adam upon all men to condemnation with the free gift unto justification coming likewise upon all men? And the vast majority of all men, uh, they certainly don't exhibit any of the fruits of justification by faith. And the answer to this apparent contradiction is simply to say that that is true. All men do not exhibit the fruits of justification by faith because they have not been justified by faith. They have only been justified legally. And the simple fact that they live is evidence of that legal justification. All men would not be able to draw even one breath if that legal justification were not already in effect for them. The very fact that they live is proof that Christ died for them and is the sacrifice for their sins. It's only by virtue of this sacrifice that God, like it's written in Acts 17.30, can wink. God can wink at the times of their ignorance on the basis of this legal justification. And so here is where the gospel, the good news, comes in. You know, we've been commissioned, haven't we, as Christians, by the Lord Jesus himself to go out into all of the world and proclaim the gospel, haven't we, to every nation and kindred tongue and people. We are to tell all men what? That they have been justified. This is wonderful good news that we can share with them in our evangelistic work. We are to bear to all men good news. We are not to bear to all men condemnation. And, and judgment. We're to bear to them the fact that God has justified them, you see. In other words, God doesn't have a chip on his shoulder against them. By the way, that's what most people think God has against them, right? Most people think God isn't, doesn't like them, and uh, you're not going to get right with God unless you appease his anger and live a straight life, and after all, that's impossible, so I'll just keep going on and hating God because he hates me. And there's nothing but bad news in that. And the gospel good news of evangelism is we can go to tell them that God doesn't have a chip on his shoulder against them because he's justified them legally in Christ. In other words, you don't have to initiate this whole salvation thing by first of all cleaning up your life and then God will see, inspect whether the, the laundry has done its work sufficiently for him to get you into his family. Because 
In Christ, God has already legally adopted the whole family, the human family, into the divine, legally. It's for them to hear this good news and experience that heartwarming atonement and reconciliation, the, the human heart being broken down in repentance. That love does that, you see. And then the heart reconciliation, the justification by faith takes place, the experience of it, you see. Now, when we go out and proclaim this good news, uh, some will believe. And the moment that they believe, the, that moment they are justified by faith. Look at now 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians 5 and verses 14 and 15. It says, if one died for all, that would be who? Jesus. If one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all. That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. So Jesus died for all. That they which live. Who lives? The all that he died for. They all live. And then he says that they should not live henceforth live unto themselves. That would be the reconciliation. Okay? All would be dead if Jesus had not died for all. If, if God had never had this wonderful plan before the creation of the world in place for sinners, if there was no thought of the cross and God's covenant before the creation of the world and man should have fallen into sin... As soon as Adam had died, that would have been the end of the whole human race, right there, because the wages of sin is eternal death. It doesn't mean going on living for the next 6,000 years and propagating children uh, who are also sinners. There would be no justification legally for that in the universe, much less before Satan, you see. But no, God had a plan, even before Adam sinned, so that in the eventuality, Man would have a savior as soon as that would happen. So all would be dead if he had not died for all. Because the grave is exactly what sinners deserve. But the very fact that all live is evidence that a legal justification has been effective for them in that our savior Jesus Christ. Now I want you to look at something. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and, and verse 10. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10. Uh, this is another familiar verse, but I want you to see something here. but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought what? Life. Had Jesus not died, there would be death. But Jesus abolished death, therefore there is life. That life is all life, both saint and sinner, that he's talking about. He's abolished death and brought life and what? Immortality for those who believe. But life for everyone. See? He's brought life. That's why we can have a, a, a limited amount of time to live here on this earth. You know, a beginning and ending with the potential of immortality. And that reward at his second coming. That's what he's talking about here. For those who believe, immortality. Then in verse 19, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19, back there, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19, we read, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. If God... Uh, caused a reckoning with us as far as our sins are concerned, what would be the result? Well, we would be dead, wouldn't we? We would be goners. But God has reconciled the world unto himself, 
and he does not charge even the wicked with their sins, much less the believers. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Some people have it just the opposite. They say, well, i got to get myself reconciled to God, and then he'll reconcile himself to me. In other words, I initiate it, and then he will respond. That's the gospel backwards. Amen? It's the wrong way. God is the one who's doing the reconciling here. Uh, if it's something, some nice offering that I have to give him in order to calm his anger down at me, that's the pagan concept of propitiating God's anger. You know, maybe I can, maybe I can appease God by offering one of my daughters on a sacrificial altar. You know, maybe offering my own blood like that will calm him down in his anger. Well, it's the same idea if we have, if we Christianize it and say, well, I'm going to you know, pray, and I'm going to repent, and I'm going to study my Bible, and I'm going to go to church, and maybe this will calm God's anger down toward me, and I'll be reconciling myself to him, and then he'll finally reconcile himself to me. That's not what this text teaches at all. It says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He has effected a reconciliation, and it is this love that breaks down the enmity in the human heart and affects the reconciliation of ourselves to him. Clearly, God does not impute any man's trespasses unto him. The only... uh, When a person resists this great love of God and resists this great reconciliation, this justification, then it manifests itself in all kinds of wickedness and all kinds of sin. But uh, it's only a manifestation of what? You know, what is the great big sin of all sins? Leslie has it. It's unbelief in who? In Jesus, right? Because belief in Jesus does what? Well, it's faith in Christ, or the faith of Christ works by love, according to Paul in Galatians. And that's genuine faith. It works by love. Uh, But uh, I lost my train of thought. It'll come back to me in just a minute. (laughs) So the only sin for which anyone would be condemned in the judgment is the sin of unbelief in Jesus. That is, the sin of not appreciating the sacrifice which effected a legal justification for all. When Christ died, he did something for every man, woman, and child in the world. He was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world, John 1, 9. And this light is not a mere provision, it is effective. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So no one who is a, either a saint or a sinner ever knows a moment of joy or ever smiles but by the virtue of the sacrifice of Christ. Do you think that this is news that the world needs to hear? And for those who believe it, it certainly is good news, isn't it? Now go to Romans 3, verse 23 and 24. I'd like to show you something here. I hope you will not forget this and uh, underline it. It will become a key text for you. Romans 3, verses 23 and 24. It says, For all alike have sinned. That includes me and you. All alike have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And all are what? Justified by God's free grace. What is it? Is it? It's free, right? Free grace alone. Now, if I'm justified by my faith, and I'm, a, I'm initiating that, and I'm effecting my salvation, I'm getting it started, is that free grace? So this has to be legal justification it's talking about in this verse because it's free grace to how many? The all who have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is not talking about justification by faith. This is talking legally here. All alike have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God or the New English Bible says deprived of the divine splendor All who have sinned are justified by God's free grace alone 
through his act of liberation in the person of Christ Jesus. So this all means what it says, and it harmonizes with these other passages that we've looked at. The, the New English Bible correctly translates the Greek justified, which is a present participle with the word all as its proper subject. Since God's grace is free, it must be equally manifested to all. If it is a mere provision that is subject to certain conditions, it cannot be described as free. Just the point that I was making earlier. Um, if your salvation does not start until you believe, until you effect it, then it is not free grace. But it is, says it is by God's free grace alone. It comes upon all, the all who have sinned, see? So this justification by God's free grace alone, obviously it must be forensic or legal. For all men do not believe it, and all certainly do not receive it. Then Paul continues. Now verses 25 through 28 continue to discuss justification that proceeds from this legal justification that has been affected for all. And it's discussing now the experience of it the experience of justification, which brings remission of sins through faith in his blood. And because faith is counted for righteousness, God can be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. And, and this justification by faith involves a heart change, a change of the heart. Justification by faith is not merely legal, a judicial declaring millions uh, of light years away. It includes a remission of sins. Remission is not a mere entry in a legal record without relation to the heart of the sinner. Remission is the taking away of the sin that is accomplished in justification by faith. For the remission of sins, remission means removal. What is it that causes the alienation of my heart to God? Well, the root problem of it is uh, love of self, isn't it? Which creates all the problem of my actions of sin. So when justification by faith takes place, it's a heart appreciation for the love of God, which cost the son his life. He literally went to hell for me to pay for my sins. And when that love reaches my heart, The heart is reconciled. This is not just a head thing. Oh, this is belief number six. And if I mentally assent to that, my sins are forgiven. That's what a lot of people think faith is. It's just a head thing. Isn't that true? Most people think that faith is, is if you believe hard enough, then it's going to be true. By the way, that's legalism. That's self-generated faith. Do you see that? The only genuine faith is the faith that's created by the love of God and appreciating that love of God. That's, there's no legalism in that. That's pure agape. So this is not just a head thing, an adjustment of the gears in my mind to a creedal statement. This is a heart adjustment to God where the remitting of sins takes place the root of sin, which is self, is removed. And the atonement happens. The propitiation, if anything, if anyone needs the propitiation, it certainly isn't God. We are the ones that need the propitiation. Because we're the ones that are angry, not God. It's the cross that melts the anger and turns it into his love. And we're propitiated then by the sacrifice, by the blood. And this involves the remission of sin, the removal of it. So the sacrifice of Christ was made for the sins of the whole world. Adam's sin brought condemnation upon all men. But the propitiation offered by Christ canceled the condemnation so that the free gift came upon all men under justification of life. Don't you agree that uh, the scriptures are clear on this? 
they're clear. We've given a number of passages of Scripture that indicate the clearness of it. It is simple. Paul and John do not say that the free gift of justification has been accepted or believed by all men unto eternal life, but they do say that by his propitiation, Christ effected a justification for all men, even for all of the world, and obviously that must be legal, must be forensic. The sinner has been nourished by the body and the blood of Christ all of his life, and in his unbelieving state, it has been unwitting, ungratefully received. How many days have we received blessing after blessing after blessing from the hand of God, and we never even knew, we were just stupid, that it was coming from him all along. And we thought that we generated it. All of the good things that come our way, we generate. We worked hard for it, you know. It was by our works, our going to work every day from 9 to 5, you know. But every blessing has really come from God, and even the wicked unwittingly and ungratefully receive the blessings of life. But when he hears the truth of the gospel, he is either going to have one of two responses taking place As the gospel evangelist comes and proclaims this good news, either he is going to disbelieve it or he's going to believe it, you know? And if he disbelieves, then he's crucifying to himself the Son of God afresh, and he puts Jesus to open shame, and he treads underfoot the Son of God, and he counts the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and he does despot to the spirit of grace, and... But God's grace is so great that it pursues all men for a lifetime before the sinner continues to resist until this tragic final unbelief uh, is is final. If the sinner believes, thank God if he believes, (laughs) thank God, then his heart's moved by a sense of appreciation for the sacrifice that's offered for him So again, I repeat, New Testament faith is not some kind of adjustment of the mental gears to the right creedal statement to a certain ascent of doctrines. It is not a choice that is motivated by self-love concern, whether a desire for a reward in heaven or a fear of hell. By the way, it's atrocious what I'm hearing evangelicals teach regarding faith over the tube. Last night, I was so whacked out, I went to bed at 10 o'clock, but my wife needed to have something to kind of soothe her, so she had the tube on, and she was watching the evangelical preacher, preacher Joyce, Evangelist Joyce. Maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. What's her name? That woman. <laughs> and, huh? Oh, Joyce Myers? And this is what she was saying faith is. If you believe hard enough, you're going to get that car. If you believe hard enough, you're going to get that healing. If you believe hard enough, you're going to get that money in your bank account. This is a complete devaluation of the word faith. So that means nothing. The currency has shrunk to nothing. When genuine New Testament faith is a heart appreciation for the agape love of Jesus Christ, which melts the heart and affects an atonement in the heart. It's not some kind of mental adjustment in the gears where you've got to get your head straight and do a psychological adjustment, and then you're going to get what you believe. This is all mental fantasy. It's what it is. It's based on nothing. It, it, this is genuine legalism is what it is. If it's self-generated, it's legalism, and it's based on selfish motivations of getting a reward. And this is the kind of faith that's being proclaimed. I think there's better news for them to hear, don't you? There's much better news for them to hear. New Testament faith is of the heart. In fact, Romans chapter 10 and verse 10 says, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness. With the heart, man believeth unto right. Do you know what the best definition of faith is? John 3.16. For God so loved the world 
that he did what? He gave his only begotten son. And then you have what? That whosoever, that's faith, isn't it? Now, which comes first? I affect faith, and then salvation wheels start turning? No. For God so loved the world that he does the giving. So he effects, he initiates the love, he initiates, the, he's, doing the, he's the giver, and this is what creates the faith in the soul of the believer, you see. That, uh, John 3.16 is Jesus' own definition of genuine New Testament faith. Since the fall of Babylon, or rather because of it, Seventh-day Adventists, by the way, uh, this is one of the greatest, one of the evidences that Babylon is fallen is because of its understanding of faith. Do you see what I'm saying? The definition of faith out there on the tube that I just gave you is bankrupt. And it's an indicator of how fallen Babylon is in terms of its understanding of salvation. And don't you think that Babylon needs to hear the true full value currency of what faith is? It, it ought to hear that because Jesus died for Babylon. He died for the sinners in Babylon. They need to hear the good news. Well, since the fall of Babylon, or rather because of it, Seventh-day Adventists find themselves left holding the bag, as it were, with this original New Testament definition of faith. It's unique unto us. The reason is that the foundation stone of Babylonian theology makes New Testament faith impossible as an experience. And this is the source of much confusion. Uh, <clears throat> it's, it's because, so you know, I, I'll admit to you, my understanding of faith before the Lord revealed it to me from Scripture was this common currency out there that it's some kind of mental gears, you know, and you got to get your head adjusted right, you know, and believe this thing just right, and then you're going to get what you believe. <laughs> and I, under, I know that it takes a new paradigm shift, but it's all the difference between false faith and true faith. Are you willing to make the shift in your thinking? Because it makes all the difference in the world in terms of preparing us for Jesus' coming. And another thing that contributes to this is the doctrine of the immortality of the soul, and that this uh, false doctrine deprives the love of God of its true self-giving nature and uh, de debases it into an egocentric love. It has the Savior assuring the thief on the cross, today shalt thou be with me in paradise, so that Christ did not truly die and did not suffer the equivalent of the second death, did not drink the cup to its bitter dregs, and the Father did not truly give his Son, but only lent him. And according to this false doctrine, Christ himself was sustained throughout his ordeal on the cross by an egocentric concern. Okay, Jesus said, All I need to endure about 24 hours of pain here, uh, but I'm not really going to hell, you know, because I'm going to promise this thief that right now today, after I get down off this cross, I'm going to take him up to paradise with me right now. Well, if that was the thought that was in Jesus' in mind, and that Jesus believed in the immortality of the soul, then God only lent him for a little while to this earth, and he didn't really pay the ultimate sacrifice and didn't go to hell for us. And that devalues faith. And that's another indication of how fallen Babylon is in its understanding of the cross. Because the doctrine of the immortality of the soul, which is the foundation stone of Babylon, both in Romish church as well as in Protestant churches, which are his daughters, um, that's the understanding of death. And if that's the understanding of death, that when... 
when, per, when a person dies, that that's the door to heaven. Then when Jesus died, he went, he survived, he lived, you know, his soul lived on. Well, we've talked about this before. It was a good acting job he put on then, wasn't it? And that devalues faith. It really isn't agape. He just gritted his teeth and bore it, you know, and then he was released from it. No, we understand Jesus' death on the cross to mean that he gave up for eternity his relationship with his Father. He surrendered completely the independent use of his his divine powers. He turned it all over to the Father so that without the Father's permission, he would never be resurrected from the grave and he did not see through the portals of the tomb. The only reason that he did come forth from the grave of his own power is because God the Father sent an angel down there and gave him permission to bring himself up from the grave. So he literally went to hell. He paid the wages of sin, which is eternal death. And faith is based on that agape, on that love. Whereas Babylon's faith is based on the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. And Jesus just grit his teeth for 24 hours and then his soul survived it because death was the door to life for him. Well, our time has run out here and maybe we'll complete a little bit of this left, but uh, it makes all the difference between the, in the world between uh, genuine righteousness by faith and the false righteousness by faith, true faith and the false faith, uh, the faith of Babylon versus the faith of God's remnant people. And in the final crisis, we're going to need something more than false faith. We're going to need something more than a mental adjustment of the gears of our heads to get through the mark of the beast issue and the seven last plagues, aren't we? We're just going to need more than believe it and claim it to get us through that. What we're going to need is the agape love of God to get us through that crisis. And we're going to need something more than legalism that's self-generated We're going to need what's generated by God's agape love to get us through the final crisis. By the way, I think we need that faith right now, don't we? (laughs) We're tested every day. Uh, We talk about these things, uh, these major principles, and I have confidence that God helps you to know how to apply them practically in your day-to-day life and in your relationships because he can teach you through his Holy Spirit how to live out his agape love. 